following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His graces? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood? In the blood? In the soul cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin And be washed in the blood of the Lamb There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb Are you washed? Are you washed? In the blood In the blood In the soul cleansing blood of the Lamb Are your garments spotless? Are they white as are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Some glad morning when this life is over I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore I'll fly away Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away To a land where joy shall never end I'll fly away Yeah, I'll fly away, oh glory I'll fly away And when I die, hallelujah, bye Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. I've been in the work of the gospel for many more than 40 years. 
I've watched the American church. I've struggled as a pastor. First, in my early years, being very much caught in the desire to build a great church and be successful in America, buying into the model of the seeker-sensitive church, and finally becoming utterly disillusioned with it and recognizing there was really no difference between the people who came to the church and the people who walk in the world. Their interests were similar. Their, their places of entertainment were the same. Their lifestyle was the same. Oh, it might have been gussied up a little bit, but basically it was the same wicked lifestyle. And out of the emptiness of my heart, I began to seek after Jesus and begin to spend hours every day reading the scriptures and praying. Now, I must tell you two things today. One, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But two, I am desperately ashamed of the modern American church. I'm ashamed of the worldliness that has come in among us. I am ashamed of the cheap grace that is peddled on every street corner. I'm ashamed that a man would call himself a Christian and walk like a pagan. I'm ashamed of a modern American church that would say it's not possible for me to leave my sin, thus making the blood of Jesus of no more value than the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament. But I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in that gospel, there is a, a dunamis, a, it's the Greek word for dynamite, there is a dynamite power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It is a gospel of righteousness that comes from God, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It is a gospel that teaches the, that the righteous will live by faith. That does not mean a gospel of wickedness with the belief that we're covered with Jesus' righteousness. No, the gospel of Scripture is a gospel that is true. It's not a shell game. It demands a total change in the life of a person who is brought to Jesus Christ and who then is transformed by grace into his likeness. It is not the work of a lifetime. It is a work of supernatural conversion being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. It is a work of a moment when a man or a woman is changed into the likeness of Jesus and they cast off all darkness. It is the work of a moment when men and women are given the power to no longer walk in the sin of their former life. If the gospel of Jesus does not give you that, then what you have is the gospel of the modern church and not that of Jesus Christ.
I'm ashamed of the gospel of America. It's watered down. It is softened. It is homogenized. And it allows people to be irresponsible and unresponsive to the call of Jesus Christ. It's time for the church to become, if I could use a term that is being spoken of much today, warrior servants. Men and women who will take a stand for Jesus Christ and will not compromise it. One young woman who was recently taken on a business trip for advanced training by her boss in telling me what happened, testified that they arrived at the destination and the boss immediately said, I need to unwind. Let's go to the bar. I need a drink. I'll buy you a drink too. And she very kindly and sweetly said, No, thank you. And went to her room to pray for her boss. She did not want to participate even sitting in the presence of a man who's in the process of getting drunk. I admire that. It's time for us, as Christians, to take a stand and not participate and not even seem to approve of ungodliness. It's time for us to not be afraid to stand up and say, homosexuality is sin. Do we love the homosexual man or the lesbian woman? Yes, like we love all sinners. But it is sin. It's time for us not to agree with drunkenness, not to agree with thievery, to take a stand against bitterness and anger. It's time for us to take a stand against cheap gossip. It's time to take a stand against gluttony. I've said a number of times, how can I preach righteousness and be way overweight? I can't. There has to be a demonstration in my life of discipline given to me by Jesus that I stand in by faith, transformed into his likeness. Or I'm playing games with God and with myself and with those around me. Don't say, I'm a Christian, and go home and get drunk. Don't say, I'm a Christian, and go home and speak harshly to your wife and your children. Don't say, I'm a Christian, and then take every advantage when you have an opportunity to cheat for your advancement. Don't go home and say, I'm a Christian, and find all of your entertainment in the Internet, in movies, in television, in sports. Don't say you're a Christian, for you're not. You see, the Christian will not continue to walk in pride, in arrogance, in hardness of heart. A Christian will not continue to walk in argumentative violence against another person. A Christian 
will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness. That's who a Christian is. If that is not who you are, please be honest. Because until you become honest, not condemned, but honest about your true condition before God, and you stop pretending, you cannot be a Christian. And frankly, our modern American churches are filled with pagans who try to look like they're Christian. But essentially, in their heart, there is a selfishness that rules them. They are first and foremost concerned about their success, their self-image, what others think of them. They're concerned about their pleasures. They're concerned about getting ahead in life. They're not concerned with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And they're not earnestly seeking His righteousness and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I don't say these things to be hard. I want to tell you the most joyous part of my life is walking with Jesus Christ. The most wonderful part of my day is waking up in the morning innocent before God with praise and joy coming forth from my mouth and my heart. This morning I woke up early and without even thinking there was a song of praise in my heart. I see all that Jesus is doing and I rejoice in him. One of the members of the National Prayer Chapel, a man, a very strong man, a man's man, a guy who no one would suspect of any way being effeminate. He is a man's man. He said, in your personal prayer life, if you have not ever slipped and called Jesus honey, you've not spent enough time in the prayer closet. Oh, I tell you, Jesus must become the love of our heart. And that union with Jesus produces such exquisite joy and peace. No matter how hard the external life is, no matter what the demands are, no matter what we face, and I know some of you today face very desperate situations and circumstances, both in your home life, in your work life, in your own heart. You may be suffering with illness today. You may be recovering from surgery today. Whatever the condition that's going on in the external world, that does not touch the inner heart of a Christian. The inner heart of a Christian has explosive joy even in the face of exquisite pain. I know that seems like an oxymoron, but it's not. I testify. I have people say to me, Pastor, you look so bright. 
What's going on? You look so happy. What's going on? Jesus. Jesus is going on. The love of my heart is going on. I rest secure in his love. His banner over me is love. His wing extended over me, protecting me, is love. Is this your experience? Or are you walking yet in in sin, making excuses for it? Then you need to be converted. Don't pretend you're a Christian and walk in sin. Don't have these items you're working on that are deliberate rebellion on your part against the Almighty and say you're a Christian. Get real with God. Get real with your own heart. And the next step is called repentance. Jesus came preaching, according to Matthew, repentance. Those those were the first sermons he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, the kingdom of God has come. It's among us. We're different. Today, in many parts of the world, Christians are being executed, raped, murdered, cast out of their homes, losing their properties, fleeing for their lives. But they still have a joyous, wonderful, awesome commitment to Jesus Christ. So you may, because of your grief and your circumstances, be weeping, but at the same time there will be an everlasting joy rising up in your heart because you know in whom you have trusted your destiny and you have tasted that he is good and you know he loves you. Now, can I say this very bluntly to you? The devil hates you. The devil wants to wipe you out. He steals, he kills, he accuses. Don't be deceived. First John, the third chapter, is very clear that if you still walk in your sin, you are not saved. Now, I know some of you have been taught that once you're saved, you're always saved. That's a lie. It's not true. The scriptures are abundantly clear about this. I want to read for you from Romans, the first chapter. In verses 16 and 17, there is a proclamation of Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a gospel of righteousness. Dikesune, in the Greek, it means innocence. It's a, it's a gospel that leaves us innocent before God. Maybe immature, yes. I think I'll need Jesus throughout eternity. And after a million years, I probably still will not be mature. I have a lot of growing to do. I'm, I'm immature before God. But immaturity is not sin. It can lead me to sin and rebellion, but it's not sin. And I have many infirmities that 
that I don't have the strength to do all that I desire to do for Jesus in the kingdom of God. But infirmities are not sin either. What is sin, according to Scripture, the book of Titus, we'll turn there in a moment, is rebellion against God. Voluntary rebellion against God. Now suddenly, in the book of Romans, in the first chapter, Paul takes a total twist and turn and changes the subject abruptly. In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. If you are in the church and you are walking in sin, this is speaking about you, for you are suppressing the truth of righteousness by your wickedness. The testimony of your life is that Jesus is un able by his blood to set you free. He's unable to break the power of sin over your life, that somehow you have to struggle and you weren't successful and so now God's just going to have to accept you the way you are. No, he will not accept you in your sin unless you repent. This righteousness does not come by the law. It is not legalism. This righteousness comes by way of Jesus releasing you from sin by the power of his blood. And it's a faith walk in confidence. Jesus, you said you would break the power of this sin. Now I stand by faith that this sin is broken in my life. And I'm going to stand there and proclaim it until it is done. Whether it takes a long time or a short time, I will not give myself to this sin. And I ask you, Jesus, give me hatred toward my sin. Now, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Lust in your life is a sign that God is giving you over because you refuse to deal with your sin. That's very sobering. That God finally pulls back and lets us walk in the sin we desire and suffer the consequences of that sin. All the while, we can be very religious. But we repress, with our wickedness, we repress the truth of God. Verse 28 
since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossipers, slanders, God-haters, insolent. This is terrifying. You can be in the church and be all of that or one of those because you refuse to deal with the reality of your condition before a holy God. You suppress the truth of the delivering blood of Jesus Christ and you bring a curse on your own life and you bring ill repute to the body of Christ. I would rather every person who chooses to continue walking in their sin would simply leave the church. Because then the testimony of the church will not be tainted. Is, this, is the church for sinners? Absolutely. But it's for sinners who are willing to come to terms with their true condition, be converted, and become one with Jesus Christ. Now verse 12 of chapter 2 all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And so people say, I'm not under the law, Pastor. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Well, all who sin apart from the law, you consider yourself not to be under the law. Great, I'm not under the law either. I'm under the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm under the power of the blood of Jesus, and I stand by faith for His righteousness. It says, if, if you say you're not under the law, but you walk in sin, you will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And that word declared is a wrong translation in the NIV. It should be made righteous. Dikasune those who will be made righteous. We are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are not declared righteous. Now if you go to chapter 3, it talks about how all men start at the same place. And then in verse 20, Therefore, no one will be made righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We become conscious of sin. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are made righteous freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So now, let's be clear. If we walk in sin, as I've been sharing with you, the scripture found in Ecclesiastes 8.11, King James Version, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, 
Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Now, the text assumes that sinners are already under the sentence of death. Now, because that sentence of death is not executed speedily, as it was on Ananias and Sapphira, the church is not afraid to continue walking in a false teaching of the Reformed doctrine that I am a sinner, but I am saved as a sinner, and I can't leave my sin. But the Word of God teaches that we are already under the sentence of death if we continue to walk in sin, for the wages of sin is death. If you've ever attended a court of justice you know that the sentencing comes after the trial and the conviction. Just before the sentence is given, the room is absolutely still. Not a person will move. It seems as though people are holding their breath. The judge reviews the case and comes to the solemn conclusion, you are convicted by this court of the crimes alleged and now you are to receive your sentence. And the sentence is pronounced. Nothing you can do will stop that sentence of justice from being pronounced upon you if you stand before the court accused and condemned. You are accused and you are condemned. All of the children of Adam and Eve stand in that place before God. But after this solemn transaction, execution is commonly deferred for a period of time. The purpose of this waiting period may be either to give the criminal opportunity to secure a pardon, or if there is no hope of this, at least to give him some days of we- or weeks for serious reflection. But after the sentence is given... The case is fully decided. No further doubt of the criminal guilt can intervene to affect the case. The possibility of pardon is the only remaining hope. The awful sentence seals his doom unless it is possible that there might be a pardon. That sentence, how it sinks into the heart of the guilty culprit. You are now, says the judge, ordered back to the place from which you came to be kept in fetters under close confinement until the day appointed. Then you will be taken from your prison between the hours of 10 and 12, as the case may be, and hung by the neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul. The sentence has been passed. The court has done its work. It only remains for the sheriff to do his work. As the executioner of justice. And the fearful scenes close. The Bible represents the similar case of the sinner. 
<clears throat> he is under sentence, but his sentence is not executed speedily. Some delay in punishment is allowed. The arrangement of the divine government requires no court and no jury. The law itself says the soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel 18.20 Or, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do. Galatians 3.10 Thus the mandate of the law involves the sentence of every sinner, a sentence from which there can be no escape and no reprieve, except by a pardon. This is your position before God, unless you have been granted a pardon. But consider another strange fact. Because sentence is not executed speedily, because there is some delay in carrying it out, because mercy prevails to secure for the condemned culprit a few days' delay, so that punishment will not tread close on the heels of crime. Therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. What a perversion, and what an abuse of the gracious design of the king in granting a little respite from the instant execution because of his crimes. Let's see how it would look in the case of a friend. He's committed a fearful crime. He's arrested. He's put on trial. He's convicted. He's sentenced and handed over to the sheriff to await the soon coming day and hour of his execution. The judge says to him, I defer execution so that you may have an opportunity to secure a pardon from the governor. I assure you that the governor is a most compassionate man. He loves to grant pardons, as he has already pardoned thousands. If you will give up your spirit of rebellion, he will most freely forgive you. I beg of you, therefore, that you will do no such thing as try to justify your crime. Don't think of escaping death by making excuses and proclaiming your innocence. But instead, you must cast yourself upon his great mercy. Don't flatter yourself that there can be any other hiding place where you will be safe. Now suppose that this friend begins, I've done nothing. Nothing at all. I've just been like everybody else. I'm simply a martyr to truth and justice. It's not fair. I've done nothing that's very wrong. Nothing that any government ought to notice. I don't, I don't believe I've been sentenced. I will live as long as the best of you. So the man begins to make excuses even though he's already condemned. Do you understand? We start this life 
on earth as a baby, already condemned to death. Your children are little lost souls condemned to death. And it's your job as a parent to make them aware of their condition and bring them to Jesus Christ and cause them to be under deep conviction. And you say, but how can a child sin? Oh, rebellion in every respect. Disobedience. Fighting with his sister or her brother. Disobeying mom and dad. All of these are, are sin before God. They're just immature. But the seed of sin is in the heart of every man and every woman, and every man and woman, according to the Scripture, is condemned to die. Now, the sentence has been postponed to give us time to be made righteous. This man we're speaking of, suppose he acts as if he's preparing for another trial, as if he expects to prove his innocence again before the court. Perhaps even sets himself to oppose and curse the government, railing at its laws and at its officers, deeming nothing too bad to say of them, indulging himself in the most outrageous opposition, abusing the very men whose mercy has spared his forfeited life. Anyone would be shocked to see such a case, to see a man ignoring reality and cursing the judge who has sentenced him to death. The text that we're sharing affirms this to be the case of the sinner. And my observation supports this. I've seen it over 10,000 times. You can look back and see in your own case, you know it is all true, fearfully and terribly true. Excuses for sin. Pretending. Claiming God is not fair. I don't have a fair shake. I'd leave my sin if I could, but I can't. The blood of Jesus doesn't do the work for me. I've tried as hard as I can, but I can't be perfect, so it's unfair for me to be executed. If you were to begin to understand today that if you're walking in sin, regardless of what you claim for yourself to be a Christian, if you're walking in known sin and rebellion against the Most High God. Your soul is damned. And if this dawns upon your heart and you don't push it away, but you deal with reality, you deal with the honest teaching of Scripture, then you will be utterly broken in your heart before a mighty and holy God. the simple declaration of the mighty God of heaven has this judgment against you recorded in the scriptures. If you keep saying to yourself, I'm saved, I'm not condemned, 
I will just keep going along. I will still dare to tempt God's patience. I do not at all believe that he will send me to hell. At least I will go on for one more season, and after that I find it quite advisable to turn. I will do so. But at the present time, why should I fear to set my heart fully in the way God has forbidden? Where could you find such a parable to such such wickedness? The mercy of God is rich and sweet. Would you say God is so good and his mercy is so great and his grace is so wonderful that I will abuse him all the more? God loves me so much that I will go on insulting him and preventing his long-suffering to save me. I will pervert it. I will allow my soul to be hardened in sin and rebellion. My brother, my sister, let me assure you that each sinner has now the date of execution set for his life. God will not pass over your sin. And when your day of execution arrives, there will be no delay. And you will not be made righteous in your death, whether by heart attack or accident old age or disease you will not be made righteous when you die you must be made righteous now by faith in the blood of Jesus you must be metamorphosed into a new creature you must be transformed you must lay aside all sin God does not wait because he's in doubt about the justice of the sentence or because his heart questions him in view of its terrible execution. The scriptures refer to this as the strange work of God. God only waits so that he may try to persuade you to embrace his mercy. This is all. This is the only reason why judgment is has lingered for such a long time, and the sword of justice has not long since struck you down. It is the kindness and the mercy of God. And if you abuse that mercy by claiming some false theological position, it will not bring you into heaven. It will not spare you. There must be true righteousness in your life where Jesus is everything to you, where you have utterly turned your back on the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil, where you are transformed into the likeness of Jesus, and all excuses have been put aside, and you earnestly seek after Jesus. I spoke with one young person, and this person said to me, I, I want very much to be a Christian. But the love of this person's heart is not Jesus. It's the Internet. It's movies. It's entertainment. And this salves her soul so that she 
can continue saying I want to be a Christian but not being a Christian. This person will not come to terms with the requirements that God has for her to be transformed into a new creature where she finally, once and for all, says, I will serve Jesus Christ. I will enter into covenant to leave my sin by the power of the blood of Jesus, and I will obey his commands in my heart. This person doesn't want to do that. So I struggle with with men and women, both those who call themselves Christians and those who don't. It was very interesting yesterday, uh, a young person that I've been ministering to who calls themselves a pagan, who claim they worship Moloch. I've been inviting this person to come to church. And after months of kindness and speaking gently and not for the first time, this person said to me, Pastor, I will soon come to church. And I said, wonderful, I will introduce you to Jesus when you come. No, why don't I introduce her to Jesus now? Oh, I've tried. But this person turns their back on Jesus and says, I don't like Jesus. I like the pagan gods of the past. I like Gaia. I like Moloch. I like Baal or Baal. Every person is going to face the judgment. And my task on this radio broadcast is to call you to quickly come to Jesus. God has not only deferred your execution at immense cost. He's provided means for the safe exercise of his mercy in your life. You know, it is a dangerous thing to bestow mercy. There's so much danger of it weakening the force of law and encourage men to trample it down in the hope of becoming exempt from its statutes. But God has provided a glorious testimony in favor of the law, showing that it is in his heart to sustain it at every every sacrifice. He could not forgive sin before the entire universe when his injured and insulted law was being dishonored. So he offered his son, both as high priest and high priestly sacrifice. God's heart of mercy is open wide to you. His pardon transforms you into a new person. Before the atonement is applied to your life, there is a brandished sword demanding vengeance because of your guilt. But through Christ's atoning blood, you can be rescued. He comes in the person of the Holy Spirit and he invites you to change, to allow him to transform you. He offers you a pardon. Do you hear that gentle rap on your heart's door? Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will dine with him, and he with me. If you look at Jesus' hands, have they not been pierced? Do you know the hands of Jesus that were pierced for you? Do you know where they have been to be nailed through and through? Do you see him suffering on the cross for you? Who is that that comes? Is it the sheriff to execute you? Has he come with armed men to drag you away to execution? No. He approaches your prison gate. Tears of compassion. He extends the cup of mercy to your parched lips. Do you see that face marred more than any man's? And yet are you set to continue walking in your wickedness, in your sin, claiming you can't leave it because there's not enough power in the blood of Jesus to break the bondage of your heart? Is this the state of your heart toward God's mercy? Heaven is very interested in the decision you're going to make. What decision will you make today? What is your choice? Will you continue in your sin and have that execution brought down upon your life? Or will you turn and be made into a new creature and leave your sin and by faith be transformed into the likeness of Jesus and search after him with all of your heart? Or do you love your worldliness? Do you love the pleasures of your flesh too much to walk away and allow the judge to extend the mercy of the blood of Jesus to your life? Mighty God, I pray for each person now that the decision they're making will be for eternity. Will you come, Holy Spirit, and and deal with each man and woman's heart that's listened to this broadcast? Would you turn them from wicked ways? Will you cause them to flee to you for mercy? Will you cause them to repent on their face before you and weep over their sin? Come, Lord Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. I praise God that you listened today to this broadcast. Please tell others about it. Send a a copy of this broadcast, the podcast, or the video to a friend. I also invite you to come and visit the National Prayer Chapel. We rent the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Let me give you the address. The address is 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia. We're just off I-95. The zip code is 22192. I invite you to come. If you're hungry for Jesus, come. I also invite you to give as the Holy Spirit moves in your heart. And I I have to say some of you have brought silver and gold. Some of you send cash. Some of you send checks or money orders. 
I can't tell you how grateful I am. Every dollar you give will go for this radio broadcast. You can send your check or money order to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. This is a faith ministry. We are a very small congregation. We of ourselves cannot financially support the radio station ministry. So we include you as a part of our congregation, and I thank you, especially those who are so faithful. Every month you send that wonderful gift. It means everything to my heart, and I believe it means everything to the heart of Jesus. This message of holiness must go out over America. A standard of righteousness must be lifted up. I praise God for your faithfulness. Thank you. Again, that address, the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I also want to thank all of those who so wonderfully sent gifts for me personally over the holiday time, a Panera, two Panera cards. I go there for lunch every day. A Starbucks card. You showed such love. I can't tell you how much I thank you for that. It's not about me, though. It's about Jesus. Thank you for your love for Jesus. God bless you, my brother, my sister. This is Pastor Ray Greenley, National Prayer Chapel. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of His glory With great joy Jesus Christ.